Palm Sunday is here again. We've enjoyed the music and the waving of the palms of the children, reenacting that Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And through the storytelling and singing of the choir, we've caught a glimpse of where that event will lead. Truth be told, Jesus' arrival and procession into Jerusalem is marked not only by celebration, but also likely by commotion and confusion bordering on chaos, tinged by unsettledness of things to come. I'm sure the Roman security guards charged with maintaining order in the city aren't too happy about the hullabaloo. They already have their hands full. This is, after all, Passover week, a week when over 100,000 additional Jewish pilgrims will flood the city to celebrate their God's saving acts that had liberated them from slavery in Egypt over 1,000 years earlier. Talk about a security nightmare. Thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims in one place remembering their history of liberation, all the while resenting their current domination by hated Roman oppressors. To say that tension is high that day in Jerusalem would be an understatement. And it's right into the heart of this tension that Jesus enters, surrounded by another storm of conflicting expectations and passions. The crowds of people, as Luke describes them, describes them as the whole multitude of disciples, they certainly have high hopes on this day. They've been with Jesus in Galilee. They've seen him curing the sick and raising the dead and announcing that the kingdom of God has come. Perhaps he will be the one to finally deliver them from high taxes, crippling poverty, and this never-ending cycle of foreign domination. Perhaps this will be the day when he will declare himself King Jesus and usher in the reign of God. Jesus' closest disciples, the chosen twelve, are likely among this crowd. They are hopeful too, just waiting to see all the things that they've been working for together during these last three years come to fruition. Not to mention, since they'd been his faithful followers all along the way, chances are good that Jesus will give them a special place in his kingdom. And then there are the zealots. They are a part of this crowd too. The zealots are a group of anti-Roman revolutionaries, terrorists, or guerrilla fighters as we might call them today. This group is biding its time, waiting to see what Jesus will do. Perhaps he will call fire down from heaven to destroy the Romans and their collaborators. 
Perhaps he will launch a popular uprising that will help them along with their plans. Now, of course, not everybody is pleased to see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, escorted by this sizable crowd. Those who aren't too happy include the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the chief priests' clan. In other words, the religious leaders of the community. Their main concern is to keep the lid on the simmering pot of resentment among their people that could so easily ignite and explode and result in an oppressive and violent crackdown by the Roman authorities. So when they see Jesus processing into town, they are not pleased. They know that this kind of ruckus can mean big trouble. Not to mention, Jesus' power and authority and immense popularity is definitely a threat to their own. So they tell Jesus, tell these people to be quiet, as if that would do any good. If they would be quiet, Jesus tells them, even these stones, even these stones would shout out. In the meantime, the Roman security guards are on high alert, lest things get out of hand. And in case anyone has forgotten who really is in power, Roman soldiers are stationed conspicuously every six feet on the roof of the temple portico. This is the climate on that parade day. Jesus is undoubtedly aware of the dynamics and of the pressures and expectations bearing down on him. And so as he reaches Jerusalem, he reaches a time of decision. Will he be swayed by the whims of the crowd, conforming to their expectations of who they want him to be? Will he be scared off by the threat of opposition, by the threat of danger, or even death? Or will he be guided by his own inner spirit, in tune with the spirit that sent him? Will he remain true to his calling, wherever that calling might lead? It is a crucial choice that Jesus must make at a very crucial moment. We're given a clue about the kind of choice Jesus has made as we see him preparing to enter Jerusalem. Although Jesus has walked here many miles all the way from Galilee, now that he's on the edge of Jerusalem, he must now have a mount for this final leg of the journey. But not just any mount. Jesus chooses a colt, a young donkey that has never been ridden. And that little detail may not seem significant to us, but to those around him it sent a clear signal, a clear signal that he intends to ride into the city as a king. The crowds that have followed Jesus are ecstatic. 
Their king is about to make his entrance into Jerusalem. The long-awaited day has finally come. And they know just what to do. They lay out a red carpet for him. In this case, their cloaks. And they fill the air with songs and chants. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. But as Jesus enters the city in this royal procession, we see that there is something different about this king. Unlike others before him, he doesn't come into the city riding in a chariot or on a war horse. He doesn't come with an army or weapons to take over the city. Instead, he rides on a young donkey and a borrowed one at that. He rides in on a symbol of humility and peace. In fact, his entrance into Jerusalem is strangely reminiscent of these words from the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. No, this Jesus is not your typical king. He's not the king of the rich and famous who would no doubt cover the path before him with their expensive garments. No, he is the king of fishermen, tax collectors, Samaritans, prostitutes, blind men people possessed by demons, people who have nothing to lay down before him but tattered cloaks and shawls, dusty, sweat-stained rags. Nor is he a king that has come to impose his rule by force. Believe it or not, this king will eventually allow himself to be arrested and executed for a crime that he did not commit. By the end of the week that begins so joyously, Jesus' followers will find him dead. This is not the kind of king they have expected. This is not what they have hoped for. And if we're honest, it's probably not what we hope for either. We hope for victory, for success, certainly not for defeat or death. And what makes things even more complicated is that this king promotes values that grate harshly against many of the values that we hold dear. Take loving our enemies. King Jesus tells us to love our enemies. 
Well, that sounds like a nice ideal, but we all know that in the real world, if you don't fight back, you get pummeled. And then there's this thing about humility. King Jesus says not to strive for the places of highest honor, but to occupy the place of a servant. I mean, if we take that seriously, we'd never get any place in life. And then there's this thing about self-denial. Jesus asks us, this King Jesus asks us, to deny ourselves and to take up the cross and to follow him. Now, maybe he doesn't know that self-denial just isn't fashionable anymore. Jesus. King Jesus. It's not that we don't believe in you. It's not that we don't love you. It's just that, well, it'd be nice if you'd be more like us. We want a king. We want a God who will help us prosper and succeed. We want a God who will bless our self-righteous judgments and who will fight on our side against our enemies and who will make us winners. We are not interested in a loser God, one who dies and suffers defeat. But this morning's story reminds us that Jesus will not be swayed by the whims of those of us in the crowd. Nor will he be scared off by the threat of pain or death. He will be guided by his own inner voice, by the spirit of the one who has sent him. He will follow the way of that voice, the way of self-giving love, faithfully until the end. That way of self-giving love takes him to the cross. And there we see a king who, in the words of an ancient hymn found in Philippians 2 that Wilson read for us this morning, this is a king who empties himself, taking the form of a slave, and humbles himself, remaining faithful to love's way to the point of death. Death on a cross. And there we see a king who, by so doing, makes a way for us that leads to healing, redemption, and life. A way that leads to reconciliation and restoration for us and for the whole world. Of course, in the end, the choice is ours. Will we follow this king? Will we follow his way? Throughout this winter, I've been meeting with a group of four young women from our congregation during our Sunday school time. Emma Eitzen and Christine Bai, Maddie Jantz, Clara Waybright. 
We are meeting to talk more deeply about faith and the meaning of baptism and church membership. At the heart of it all, the question that we are exploring together is this. In response to God's immense love for me, am I ready to commit myself to follow Jesus, to walk in his way, to share his love with others day by day, wherever that path leads. It's a crucial choice. One that will affect many other choices throughout life, including one's choice of vacation, including our choice of a life partner, including our choice of ethical behavior. It's a choice that may take us to places that we've never dreamed of. It's a choice that will most certainly shape our lives. And it's a choice that will need to be made over and over and over again. Each time we face a unique difficulty or challenge, each time we see and feel called to respond, each time we feel pushed to our limits, each time we feel threatened by hate or anger or fear, always, always a choice lies before us. Will we follow King Jesus? Will we allow his love to touch and to heal and to strengthen us? Will we allow his love to flow through us to bring healing to this world? As we move into Holy Week, we have opportunity to move with Jesus through his struggle, his suffering, his death. I'm glad that many of you have chosen to participate in the agape meals in people's homes this Thursday evening. And I hope that many of you will choose to participate in our Good Friday service, a tenebrous service here at the church Friday evening. There's also a Good Friday crosswalk taking place in the northeast part of our city in which I will be participating as well throughout the day. These events provide an important way for us to be with Jesus, to ponder the longings within him. Yes, even the longing that this cup might be passed from him and to ponder the choices that faced him, the choices that ultimately face us. As we ponder these choices, may we be given the courage to follow Jesus or to at least want to want to follow him. Yes, the way of his love led Jesus into suffering, and into death. And it also opened the way for us and for our world to new life. May this path be the one we choose.